Hello and welcome to another special Empire podcast. The man being interviewed in this particular special Empire podcast is Eric Idle, member of Monty Python's Flying Circus, The Ruttles, and Unseen University. Eric Idle is a bit of an icon and a hero around Empire, so it was a great pleasure for both myself, Ali Plum, and Chris Hewitt to interview him for a about 40 minutes or so. We cover everything from his Spamalot musical, which we both went and saw, and also his latest project, What About Dick? So to find out about both those things, and a whole lot more, do not adjust your podcast playing device. Enjoy. Uh, we're delighted to welcome to the Emperor Pod booth the, the great Eric Idle. Uh, welcome, sir. Good afternoon. You've had quite a, a Spamalot week. Um, you've been in court. Yes, we, we have been in court. Um, it's intensely boring. Uh, really, it's like being at school. And I, but I, luckily, I've been there with Michael Palin and Terry Jones. So we sort of sat at the back and fell asleep and giggled now and again. But um, we gave our evidence yesterday. Okay. And, uh, you know, that was good. And, and it's still ongoing. So, unfortunately, I can't talk about the details sure. of the case because he won't give a ruling till January. Mm-hmm. But, you know. It's cost us a bleeding fortune to get this far. I can imagine it would have done, but... Uh, <laughs> In my mind, three Python members, uh, you know, standing, giving some evidence. I can imagine the temptation to play the fool must be beyond belief. It was very difficult, but we were asked <laughs> not to, um, because it's the judge's court, you know. Yes. So if you treat it with disrespect, there's a chance he'll turn against you and be nasty. Because they ask you, you know, if you want to swear on the Bible mm-hmm. or on the Quran or affirm, and I wanted to swear on Michael Palin's diary. <laughs> but which one? But uh, Well, but it's a heavy volume, so it looks like a Bible. So, But I, they persuaded me that would be a bad joke to start off with. <laughs> <laughs> Tough crowd. So I, yeah, no. So I, I, I resisted every opportunity. Okay, to be well, funny. How, how did you decide uh, which three of you would uh, would stand uh, and give evidence? Well, it's, they're suing Monty Python. So mm-hmm. we, we, I didn't. I came all the way here because I felt so outraged about it, and also it's largely to do with royalties from Spamalot. Mm-hmm. Um, Otherwise, the case wouldn't have taken place. Mm-hmm. And John can't come back into England because he's in Monte Carlo. Oh, he's in tax exile. Tax exile. exile. Mm-hmm. Um, and Gilliam is in Budapest mm-hmm. directing, finishing a movie. Okay, okay. So, so. he couldn't, and which is lucky, because you know, if anybody can lose your court case, <laughs> Gilliam immediately could. It's a rule for life. <laughs> but, but the other, you know, Mike and Terry, it's just great. Because, you know, it goes way back, Mike and Terry and I, to, to Do Not Adjust Your Set, yeah. which was a kid's show from about 1967, perhaps, 66 mm. or 7. Mm. So, you know, it's just, it just was great to be with them all that time. Did the old camaraderie start up right away? Did you? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, no, it's just great to see him. And I, I did Mike's um, charity on Sunday uh, for Stammering Charity, and we, I went on stage and sang Always Look on the Bright Side with him. You know, because it, it's on at the Playhouse. They did it at the Playhouse, where Spamlet's yeah. on, so oh, that was great. Did it remind you of the closing ceremony of the Games? I kind of felt for you, because suddenly everything was happening all at once. You were, were attacked, I think. Essentially, well, I mean, we'd set it all up. Sure, I mean, yeah. it was, you know, I wasn't un- unwittingly What's attacked. Going on? Men with Morris dancers in sticks came and hit around <laughs> me. Um, no, that was great. I mean, that was just something. That, I mean, it took a year. And we, had to, we kept it, managed to keep it a secret, which was great, I think, because it was unexpected and people weren't looking for that to happen then. Mm. And that that was part of the delight 
of doing it is that oh my gosh they're going to do this <laughs> thing and the audience just went straight for it so that was just wonderful is that song uh, the success of that song the, the fact it's had an afterlife post Brian mm-hmm. has that surprised you yeah I mean it surprised me at the time I think um, I, I used to live in St John's Wood and my neighbour was Gary Lineker <laughs> and uh, you know we got to be chums and he t- he said they're singing your song all about all around England, mm. you know. They're singing. I said, "What?" He said, "Yeah, they're singing." Oh, do you come by and say, da, 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 da. And and I think it was Simon from Radio One. Wasn't Simon D? Simon somebody. He Simon play- Mayo. Say Simon Mayo is your man. Simon Mayo. Thank oh, you very yeah. much. He played it. Started to play. He was also a friend of Gary Lineker's. Unlikely. He started to play it every day, <laughs> every morning on his radio show. And then they re-released it, and it went to number one on one chart and number three on another chart. Yes. So it was extraordinary. And it was 13 years after the movie. <laughs> so it had begun to have its own life, you yeah. know. Which now it's a, it's a modern classic. Well, I like to think of it as the alternative national anthem. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> but it, except it's known worldwide, you know, so yeah. it's kind of good. Did you have to get clearance to swear at the uh, closing ceremonies of the Olympics? I kept waiting for them to cut it. I kept waiting for somebody to say, you know, you can't say that on television. And nobody ever mentioned it. It was just like, it wasn't an issue. Um, NBC in America bleeped it, of course. Um, <laughs> uh, and, uh, uh, but, you know, it, it, I was amazed. I was astounded. I thought, well, we've really matured. Yeah, <laughs> which is a good thing. <laughs> I, 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 um, Ali and I both saw Spamalot for the first time, uh, I think, certainly for, certainly for me. For yeah, yourself. me too, yeah. Um, and it's interesting that, that uh, Brightside starts the second act because mm. I thought you might and you do finish with it in a way but I thought you might have that as the big finish well Mike Nichols always wanted it as the big finish and then <laughs> on Broadway they'd drop golden things and cannon would go off and it was became like New Year's Eve but when we were working on the show act two was some difficulty because you you know we started off and get to the intermission uh, but to bring it home, and then I always think that just after the Act 2 starts, it's great if you can give the audience something slightly familiar mm. so they can just relax and, and ease off into it. Now, mm. of course, they all join in and sing, don't they? <laughs> they, they do, yeah. yeah. It's I, I confess impossible I not to. It's one of those songs where you just can't stop. You, you find yourself not speaking at first, <laughs> and then you start attempting to sing it, and then you stop again. <laughs> what's, what's great is uh, 500 people or 1,000 people, or however many people it is in the, in the theatre, all trying to whistle at the same time <laughs> and failing miserably because I'm a terrible whistler I can't whistle out loud it's hard it's very hard it's very hard are you proud I say this as somebody who grew up you know in car journeys with my dad um, listening to Contractual Obligation and a whole bunch of Monty Python records to have created so many songs that are stuck in so many people's heads on a day to day basis (laughs) will be stuck in my head there's a guy I know who lives next door to me not Gary Lineker um, (laughs) who's called Eric so Eric the Half a B is in oh, my brain. Right. Excellent. Every day. Well, that's I think the only one I ever wrote with John Cleese, and um, we wrote it in in uh, Munich. We were filming in Germany. With, they'd asked us to be funny. Uh, <laughs> come over, make a film, because we didn't have no sense of humour. So come over, <laughs> we do some funny things. And you know, we were uh, I think we were halfway up a mountain, and he was dressed as Little Red Riding Hood in lederhosen and a skirt, of course. of course. And we had a couple of glasses of schnapps, and I had my guitar with me and we just started to write Eric the Half a B and so it's an idle Cleese composition it's very unusual I'm very proud of it I find it interesting to find out because in my mind my naive mind I thought you wrote every single song 
that was ever to do with Monty Python. No, not at all. Which isn't, of course, isn't the case. But I found it interesting to discover that Knights of the Round Table isn't mm. one of yours. No, it was written by John Cleese and Graham Chapman, the lyrics. And then I don't know who did the music to that one. Because they wouldn't write music. I gather it's Neil Innes. Is it, does Neil get the credit? I think yeah. so. Okay, mm. good. Well, that's nice. He gets a bit more money. Uh, <laughs> no, I mean, the royalties are good. Um, no, I didn't write that. And he, I know he wrote... Uh, I, I wrote the Brave Sir Robin song, you know. Uh, he wrote the tune for that. Okay. I, I think those are the only two that are in the original movie, aren't Okay. They? Was this a bit of a minefield then when you started to write Spam a Lot? Back in when was it? Two thousand and four, two thousand and three. No, maybe two thousand and one. I think you, that's when you yeah, first started. Yeah. Okay. Wow. Well, uh, was, was it a minefield then choosing not only which sections of the movie to, mm. to put into the musical, but uh, the songs as well? But who wrote what and who who owns what and the royalties? No, no, not really. Because John, John Dupre and I have been writing together for thirty years, mm -hmm. so we have you know we have a great shorthand. Um, we pull things in because they were nice. I mean, we opened with Finland. Great gag to say, you know, this is England, and then you start in Finland. England is the country. And that's a bit sort of Michael Palin gets half a credit of that, because he wrote, Finland, Finland, Finland. And once we did a record called, I think it was the Contractual Obligation album, and uh, I got people to write songs for it because we, we were trying to dump an album on our wrist though. We were pissed <laughs> off that they had another. What do you mean we have that a contractual obligation? So we called it the Contractual Obligation album, and Michael wrote this song called Finland. Very nice, but John and I had a lot of fun because we did put a South American <laughs> tune, music and tune to it. So it's kind of Peruvian. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Um, but there's some very good songs on that. I mean, Terry Jones, Muddy Knees. Uh, I put together, the, I mean, Monty Python Sings is my favourite album and also our bestseller. And we, you can play that quite a lot. You can't play the cheese sketch every day yeah. over and over, but you can play a silly song over and over. You know, it doesn't it doesn't bother you or annoy you so much as as a, as a sketch. Mm -hmm. Another thing that was uh, really fascinating about Spamalot, and uh, I know you've reconfigured some of the show, mm -hmm. but was the, the, the new songs are are just fantastic. The well, songs that aren't Python staples. Oh well, yeah. No, I mean most of the songs. I mean most of the score is just yeah. idle Dupre. Yeah. Um, the the uh, and we even wrote a new one for this production. Because there used to be a song called, which was huge on Broadway, You Won't Succeed on Broadway If You Don't Have Any Jews, <laughs> which would just kill. You know, it would just kill. I love it still, personally. But then they said, when we came to England and ambassadors wanted to remount it in reproduction, they said, look, can we not do that song? You know, because we've got to go to the north of England. You know, get trying. So, uh, and people don't really get it. And, you know, so we did, I think You Won't Succeed in showbiz if you don't have any stars yes so we rewrote a whole new number for that and yes. you, you get you know Ozzy Osbourne and <laughs> Susan Boyle comes in and, and Boris comes across on his bicycle yeah. so I mean it is like a panto kind of <laughs> show isn't it I mean especially this version of it is really like a panto mm. and uh, it, uh, it stars you as God I, which I always forget whenever I come to see this production <laughs> I'm going I'm going <gasps> I'm going to come on. And I grip my producer's <laughs> hand and, I, and I, I, I'm terrified suddenly for a minute because yes. I've forgotten I'd done that. <laughs> and it was originally uh, John. 
John Cleese did it as the voice. The voice of God. The voice of God. And we just had a pair of legs came down. (laughs) And there was just the feet. And he said, stop looking at my skirt. You know. And and then it would take off like a rocket. (laughs) And the feet would go off. But, you know, so John did the voice of God very well. Uh But when Chris Luskin wanted to remount it, he asked me if I would film God for him. Mm -hmm. Because I think John was miles away. He hates doing makeup and filming anyway. Mm -hmm. So I was, you know, lumbered with the role of playing God. (laughs) And the thing I really like about it, which I always forget too, is it reminded me the other day, and watch it. If you're not careful, I'll invent America. And that'll teach you. (laughs) Do you feel like God? Do you have a God complex? Oh, no, 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 not at all. (laughs) (laughs) And the the thing is, in uh, in the movie, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, Graham voiced God. Graham was God, yeah. And absolutely he was. Yeah. Well, obviously... Uh, so it's a Python tradition, it's passing on down. <laughs> so only Terry, uh, Michael and the other Terry yet to go. Well, they've, they've got time, you know. They could give it a go. They, yeah. It's always, it's always been fascinating to me that um, uh, Spamalot sprung from the Holy Grail because uh, it's my favourite Python film. Mine but too. I know that filming it was quite arduous and I wonder if this was a, a bit of therapy in a way. Like, <laughs> Well, uh, it's a long time later for therapy, but... Um, <laughs> I was it was fun I mean I suddenly we've been looking for we did a sh- John Dupre and I did a um a musical on the radio on Radio 4 called Behind the Crease mm-hmm. which was originally Sticky Wicket which is about the three things the English love most which is sex royalty and cricket <laughs> and so it, it was actually a cricket musical about this this News of the World reporter going to try and trap a famous fast bowler on a West Indian island okay. and I played Desmond Boyle this hack I was thinking of reviving it actually when the Murdoch thing all happened <laughs> and, oh yeah that's all you need 82 different enemies <laughs> but, uh, but uh, it was something that I watched happen when I was on in the 80s when I was you know watching cricket in the West Indies um, so then, anyway, that was very successful, and we, we did it in front of a live audience, and and so we were always looking for another musical, and we tried the Owl and the Pussycat for kids, and that didn't quite work. Mm-hmm. I mean, it worked, but they, they took, taking it to a studio was amazing. I mean, we went to Spielberg, and he said he could only talk about Barbara Streisand because there's a film called The Owl and the Pussycat with her, and they they have no idea who Edward Lear is. And right, they yeah, don't yeah. know that poem. Yeah. So we were always looking for subjects, and then one day. I suddenly went, wait a minute, the Holy Grail would make a great musical because it keeps breaking. It's only in little sketches. Mm. There are no horses on stage. <laughs> um, and it does things like, I'm not dead yet. Well, that's immediately a song to me, you know, and it was sort of easy to see where the songs would fit. Yeah. And once I'd created, you know, the Lady of the Lake, because she's only referred to in the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, he said, well, she obviously has to appear on stage and I wanted her to be this grumpy black diva. And then uh, Mike Nichols found this great Hispanic singer, uh, actress, Sada Ramirez, who, mm. who won the Tony for it, who's currently in some medical drama whose name escapes me. I'm going to use you for... Uh, <laughs> all right. Grey's Anatomy. Grey's Anatomy. Oh, we there, got we go. Go. there we go. Anyway, and she's just she's a genius because she had the greatest voice and she has the greatest comedy chops, mm. you know, I've ever seen. It's an incredible role. I was jealous of the singer... <laughs> actress doing it on stage at the night because she for me has one of the funnest 
Oh, if I use that word, songs. Whatever happened to my part? Exactly. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. Funny. Hannah Waddingham played it in the first run in the West End, and she was she was also brilliant. How closely do you keep an eye on, on things? I mean, there have been lots of King Arthur's over the years. Do you have any favourites? Um, I well, Tim Curry obviously started it, and he he started it here. And one of my other personal favourites was Simon Russell Beale. Who oh, came yeah. to Broadway and played it, and uh, he also played it in the West End. And I mean, he's you know one of our greatest actors. I think there's no actor who wouldn't really like to play Arthur. <laughs> I think we could get almost you know almost anybody would do it for a bit. Absolutely. And Stephen Tompkinson is the uh, well, um, the uh, you know, ambassador's version. They've they've been using younger and more radio or more c- comedy people mm-hmm. in in that role, which mm-hmm. is which is which is good. Mm-hmm. And it, it was Graham's role at, uh, in the movie, obviously. And uh, again, going back to the filming of it, because um, Graham was famously an alcoholic. And that was, I think, the sort of apex, in a way, of his alcoholism. I think it's the first time we really noticed that he was uh, handicapped by it. Because on the first day of shooting, we're halfway up Glencoe on a mountain. And he's supposed to be a mountaineer. And he's clinging to the side, shaking. We're going, you're supposed to be a bloody mountaineer. I mean, the Bridge of Death, I wouldn't have crossed for any money at all. They'd been put up by Hamish, what's her name? All these Everest mountaineers had built this bridge. And he had to go across it. And he was, like, shaking with fear. And then there was a bottle thing in a, a brown thing was brought you know and it was clearly a bottle of vodka and we went oh really okay okay so then it became apparent that uh, he was actually an alcoholic yeah absolutely. not just a drunk like the rest of us <laughs> <laughs> there's a fine line there's a big line he, actually yeah, yeah. but he, um, um, I, it's amazing then given that that his performance is so brilliant well what was funny about it is if you you, you don't know this but I, if you uh, why, he couldn't remember a line. Mm-hmm. So he would go, Yes, my name is Arthur. My name is Arthur. <laughs> yes, King of, the Brit- King of the Britons. Yes, <laughs> whose castle is this? And, and if you watch it, the editing has to always cut away from his line <laughs> to something else because he couldn't put three lines a together. Tree. Yeah, yeah. Patch across. <laughs> so, you know, it, it was a handicap at that time, yeah. but it, it didn't really matter. It was so chaotic, the filming. Yeah. Really. I mean, being in court talking about those times, we've been trying to testify about 1973 and 1974. It all came back, just what chaos it was. You know, five weeks in Scotland. We made the film for, what, £200,000, which is fairly extraordinary, isn't it? I think <laughs> we spent lot. more on lawyers by the time we got to Broadway <laughs> than the entire budget of the original movie. That seems to be a theme of Python throughout the years, spending money on lawyers. And, and now it comes to this. We've, you know, unfortunately, yeah. it all redounds and rebounds on us now. Yeah. But it's really funny, actually. I've never been in a courtroom. And so we're in this courtroom, never. It wasn't an oak panel room, it's a rather modern room in the Rolls building, but all the barristers wear wigs and they have gowns. And I kept thinking it was John Cleese in some sketch in front of me, because I was always be just behind John Cleese, because he'd be the main barrister. And I kept hearing his voice, you know, get on with it. <laughs> Sorry I'm late, my lord, I couldn't find a kosher car park. You know, all these great lines of his in the courtroom scenes, which <laughs> he's done since 1963. Right. Because he was a lawyer. He was. Yes, he, he studied was. law. He was. Yeah, yeah. I'm, yeah. Not, I'm not thinking of a fish called Wonder and a scene that my brain doesn't want to 
Let me remember. I'm Wendy, I wonder that, that scene. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a good scene. Uh, which John DePraise did the music for as well. That's right, so, he did do the music for that. It's all the circle of life. <laughs> it all yeah. comes around eventually. Uh, but but theatre is, is is that really where your 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 heart lies at the moment? Because I know you just yeah. you just did What About Dick in, yes. in LA. Yes. Which which I, I obviously didn't see, but it looked amazing. Well, no, no, you don't have to see that because you can yeah. download it. You can download it, yeah. Worldwide. Yeah. You know, it's whataboutdick.com, bing, buy. Four quid. <laughs> it's four quid. Yeah, or you can, or you can send it to friends for three quid. You know, really? then right, they, okay. you send it as presents, and then all they have to do is they get an email thing. It comes, and they just hit the link, and it starts downloading. And you've got Eddie Izzard and Russell Brand and a whole host of others. Just Billy Connolly. Yeah, Billy Connolly. Yeah, yeah. Tracy Ullman, mm-hmm. Tim so, Curry, Tim Curry, myself, mm-hmm. Sophie Winkleman, Jane Leaves. I mean, it was an extraordinary cast. And this was largely part written, part improvised. Part it, musical, it was largely part... written, but yeah. they're naughty boys because they're all comedians, <laughs> and they would go a wandering, especially Eddie. You know. I I said, I said to him one night, I said, look, when you're in doubt, if in doubt, why not just try the text? <laughs> <laughs> but he'd always lean across and look at me. I knew he was going to go off book. Well, <laughs> and now something you've got, else. You've got Connolly, you've got Izzard, you've got uh, Russell Brand. Those are the three of the great improvisers, I would say. Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, Russell, I think, was too overwrought to start improvising. Because, oh, really? Yeah. Um, because, oh, you know, he tried it one night. He, no, he did. It's in one of the outtakes. When the DVD comes out, there's a lot of great outtakes takes where they crack each other up and the whole show stops as they giggle <laughs> uh, and Russell starts off with this tremendous improv and he gets to the front of the stage and he goes oh I'm sorry I've got nothing <laughs> so I went across I got up from my chair and I gave him a pound and said here lad get a new job <laughs> <You know? laughs> he felt really embarrassed I showed it on his show that clip because oh, yeah, I was on Brand X about three oh, yes. or four weeks ago Okay, and he laughed a lot that's amazing did it derive from a desire to get people like this together in one room or was it no it's something I've been writing since the 80s I was trying to do a Merchant Ivory parody Okay. In the days when anybody knew what that was, and and we got near to making it. You know, we were sent. We once we located all the locations up in Vancouver and we're about to shoot and pay or play and uh, you know. But then it just kept collapsing. And then I went off to did the Broadway thing. So after Spamlot had been a hit, I looked back and I thought, yeah, I still like this material. It, you know, it's ne-. so I sort of configured it as a, as, as a radio broadcast so that I could get all these people in. And we tried it out in a small theater in LA, thousand people. And they, we did three performances and they went crazy. <laughs> I mean, they, they just laughed and laughed. And I thought, well, what did I just learn? Um, and so I couldn't be sure whether the play was funny or they were funny, you know. <laughs> right. So I thought, well, I'll put it aside again. And then last year I was thinking, I was you know, thinking about it again. I thought, well, I wish I could get them together and do it in a theatre. But you could never get these people together for two, three, four months to make it pay. Yeah. So I just thought, ah. Ah, I will put it on again and film it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> duh. And the thought fairy came in. And, you know, so now that's what we did. Four nights, we filmed every moment of it, you know, in, in DVD. And we have the backstage stuff. Because it was a love fest. 
<laughs> I mean, it really I was. They all, was yeah. they all had their own dressing rooms, but everybody hung out in the basement with the makeup and hair and wardrobe. And they were all hanging out. It was just, it was just like a, they couldn't resist being with each other. Well, I asked earlier on, did you have a God complex? And you said no. But at the same time, it must be quite difficult not to have one when you're in a room with people like this who idolise you and and Python and you know worship the ground you walk on. Well, is that is that is it tricky in those situations? I mean, do, do you? No, do you no. I mean, the, the, I was more like the headmaster um, <laughs> on the, in the middle of this. It was really like round the horn, you know. I was Kenneth Horn, mm. and they were all messing about. And I, but I'd have to now and again keep order. And they said, "Come on, everybody! Look, we you know we really have to get this something down here." Uh, and you know, I, I mean, I was directing it as well, yeah. uh, but not the cameras, you know, because I was Aubrey. Powell did that and um, you know it was you know you know, you can't feel you can't feel big headed or anything about it because it's all work you want it to work and when, when the curtain went up on the first night 2,000 people already went nuts because we all came in on stage you know it was just mm. the overpowering you know the, yeah. the weight of the comedy <laughs> on stage was extraordinary <laughs> Team Python have created a, a legion of fans that are quite quite peculiar. Mm. I say that as one of them, mm. where they're more than happy to just sit down with each other and recite whole scenes, whole sketches. Do you get in the street when you're recognised, people just kind of unloading sketches at you? Sometimes. I went in for a quick drink last night and an, an older man came and just started to do Mr Smoke Too Much and all over the place. And I said, <laughs> I just want a beer. I said, do you mind? And then when I was leaving a pub the other night, after the show... The whole table was singing Always Look on the Bright Side of Life, you know. Oh, all right, all right. Yeah. I bet Nudge Nudge must... Nudge Nudge features a lot, but, you know, I don't go out much. It's, uh, so, you know, I'm, I'm a writer, I stay home. So, it, uh, and also, when I was doing Spamalot, I didn't want to write for those people. Mm. I, I knew they would come or not, or they'd love it or hate it. I wanted to write for an audience that didn't know Python and wasn't in love with Python and make it work for them. And that, I think, was the achievement. That was great having Mike Nichols for that. Mm. And I think that's what we pulled off, a show that isn't dependent mm. on knowing anything. It's a Python panto, isn't it? It certainly is. It certainly is. And uh, I just wanted to talk about uh, What About Dick as well, because I was watching the... Um the EPKs on the website, mm. and Jim Piddick was uh, was on there, mm. and uh, he, he said at one point, "Oh, I met Eric on a on a film that uh, uh, that we shall never speak the name of." And then he goes, <clears throat> "Burn Hollywood, burn." <laughs> so, so he said, "You had a, that's where you you first met, and you had that shared experience of being on this film." Yes, it was called an Alan Smithy film yeah. when I was on it, and I was the eponymous Alan Smithy. And Alan Smithy is the name on films. When they fire the director, they put on an Alan Smithy film. So the conception was that this was an Alan Smithy. And they fired the director. <laughs> it's unbelievable. Joe Esther has fired the director. So in the end, he may have finished editing it, and he made a right mess of it. Yeah. I mean, he really did. It was his art to making a sort of documentary comedy. And he didn't do it. The guy who made Love Story did it. Arthur Hiller was the Arthur director. Hiller. Right, and they okay. fired him. And he, oh my he's, God. Halfway through the film, he came to me and said, I had a terrible feeling that if they take me off, it'll become an Alan Smithy film. <laughs> and he was absolutely right. Well, that was, was the end of the Alan Smithy credit. It was? That, that film, yeah. It wasn't used after that film. Ah, okay. Which is, I don't know what replaced it. I don't know if there is a catch-all term for, for directors who take the names of films. Uh -huh. but Alan Smithy has been retired. Oh, dear. <laughs> which well, is I was Alan <laughs> Smithy. You were the last yeah, Alan Yeah, I think Smithy. we won Razzies. <laughs> I think, I think, I think did. we did. I don't think I personally won a Razzie. It's still my ambition. <laughs> uh, I wasn't quite bad enough for that. But I did meet Jim Piddick and that. And, and there was um, uh, that lovely model, uh, Campbell, um, 
than banter behave without girl. Naomi. Naomi. Yes, that's right. Naomi Campbell, mm-hmm. beautiful girl. Mm-hmm. And she had to sit on my lap rather a lot, and that was very interesting filming. And <laughs> I finally saw her at the Olympic Games again. I gave her a big hug because she's really funny. She's a great sense of humor. Right. And we spent three days, me, Jim Piddock, and her filming. I was in a sort of loony bin, having been reduced to madness. Well, none of which made the movie, by the way. There was a very good earlier cut. I thought, oh, this is quite interesting. Okay. But um, I felt they should release all the footage mm. and you should be able to assemble it yourself. That's like not a, a bad idea. Like a game, you know, or a, Ikea. a set. Yes, exactly. <laughs> assemble it in whatever order you like, because there are really funny bits. Uh, um, but they didn't find the right cut. I mean, I, I know it's hard to do that, because I've done maybe two documentaries, both, I think, both the Ruttles documentaries. Mm. And it's hard to get a through line in a documentary. You know, mm. it, it, it's, it's not that easy. It's not overt what comes before another thing. And I thought that um, the George Harrison documentary... The Scorsese one. Yeah, he'd done brilliant. a brilliant job because yeah. he subtly was telling you a story without ever having a voiceover saying, then he moved to, you know... <laughs> it, it, it did lead you through a story brilliantly, I thought. You, you mentioned the Ruttles there. I recently went to Oakham, uh, which is the kind of rock and roll sentence people say in Empire, but <laughs> I, wa- I walked into Rutland and my only knowledge of it was the Ruttles. Ah, well, the Ruttles came from a TV show called Rutland Weekend Television. Mm. which uh, was a, a title I got from John Cleese and I bought it from him for a pound <laughs> because there was a big TV station called London Weekend Television for the longest time and so he mentioned something about Rutland Weekend Television which was clearly the smallest television centre in the world so f- we had about two series I think Neil Innes did did about two songs a week and I think we filmed it in a cupboard at the BBC next to the weather studio um, for about £30,000 for the series and then I think we finally went down to Bristol but it, it was it was fun I mean it was what I did after Python mm. and the only thing about it is people say well when are you going to release it when can it come out on DVD and I, I was never sure about it because if it didn't have an audience mm. and it, the audience tell you what's funny that was what was nice about editing Dick you didn't have to go oh I wonder if this they're going nuts oh yeah that's funny then yes. and, and so you you put the funny bits together and you cut out the bits that, that don't make them laugh yes it, it, it was fascinating watching um, or, or seeing what you guys did immediately after Python. And obviously, Terry and Michael went off, did Ribbon Yarns. John did yeah. Faulty Towers. You did uh, the Ruttles. Mm. Um, w- were you planning? Was there a contingency plan? Did you see Python's end coming? And did you start planning for that? Um, 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 well, I think John left early. He John left, left the after before, the yeah. third series, yeah. but he was happy to stay involved with the movie, So, which is why we did Holy Grail. And then it led to Brian and then The Meaning of Life. And I think by then it's sort of played out. You know, we'd pretty much done as much as you could. We've been together about uh, 14 years mm-hmm. on and off. And I think there was a sort of weariness. I mean, after you've done JC and The Meaning of Life, there's not, <laughs> the subjects are kind of starting to run out, you know. <laughs> so Where do you go from there? Yeah. Uh, but, I mean, I don't think anybody said, oh, that's it, that's it forever. But I think John was setting up wa- a fish called Wanda after that. Mm-hmm. And Michael, I remember Michael coming around saying, look, John hasn't written it off forever. He just wants to do Wanda and then see what happens. But 
you know, it's it was time. I mean, we'd pretty much exhausted, but but really by the third season, we'd exhausted sort of sketch comedy <laughs> possibilities to shock. We just still did the fourth. Yeah. Mm. But it, you know, you run out of ideas. You run out of you know. That's just another spin-off, another version of the cheese shopper. That's another version. So I think that that was enough. You know, was it tough for you, especially because uh, John and Graham wrote together, Terry and Michael wrote together, and you were off on your own. So was it tough to come up? No, with no. Because I didn't lose my partner. Ah, good point. I'm still with me. <laughs> <laughs> and, and because we sort of segued off into music, you know, I had John Dupre from a very early time, from yeah. the from the life of Brian time. And so we did an album with the Pythons, and then we started to branch off. And I, I think I did uh, The Mikado here, the English National Opera yeah. for Jonathan Miller. And I became enamored of writing a little list you know, because there's a song in it, I've got a little list and then none of them be missed that the Lord High Executioner sings. Mm -hmm. And there's a tradition in Gilbert and Sullivan that the Coco is allowed to rewrite those. Oh, really? So I would, you know, I'd go home, watch the news, write some gags and come <laughs> and then the whole orchestra would sit up and the whole chorus would turn and go, come on. And then I'd, you know, you, you just get the idea of getting belting laughs <laughs> from a song which really became addictive. Yeah. And I thought, well, I'm, I'm, I should write something for myself, a musical that, that, that'll be fun to do. So I went to see Mel Brooks in Hollywood and I said, could, you know, Jonathan Miller's got the, the old Vic and he's been that director for, for the year. Why don't you, why don't you let me write a play and a book for Spamala, of, of, of sorry, for, for the producers mm -hmm. and you play Bialystok and I'll play Bloom and we'll do it at the old Vic. And he said, no, 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 I'm, I'm directing movies now. <laughs> I'm not sure that would make a musical, you know, oh, really? <laughs> so it was a good idea, though, wasn't it? It was a great idea, yeah. yeah. He, should, he should do that one day. Yeah. <laughs> I was there at the opening night. Okay. Yeah, and I was so thrilled because I'd been trying to write, I'd already written Spam a lot. I was thinking, well, how am I, am I going to raise the money? You know, it's about 10 million to open a yeah. A musical on Broadway and when the producers it was just that, that first night they just went yes because it was the comedy form the musical comedy coming back yeah. it had only been sort of Andrew Lloyd Webber and helicopters landing and <laughs> you know all sorts of stuff it hadn't it hadn't been funny for the longest time right and now, now Broadway's are awash with with musical comedy. So the Book of Mormon, for example, exactly. is just coming over here. Have you, you know, do you keep up with this stuff? Do you, yeah, you, no, no. Our, our choreographer Casey Nicola directed that. Oh God! <laughs> so uh, I mean, yeah, just, I mean, they they and I knew they were doing it because I know them a bit. And they said, "Oh, we're going to do we're going to do follow you. We're going to go make a." You did a cameo, I believe, for them. Is that right? I was in their movie. Mm. Yes, Doctor Something or other. I can't remember <laughs> what it was. Doctor Falsnocker, I believe it was. Was it? Oh, yeah, thank it you very much. Well done. <laughs> there you go. Points for me. But they, uh, <laughs> yeah, they, I mean, I think I did their TV show. They asked me to come and do it anyway. Uh -huh. And what about sketch comedy, Eric? Do you keep up with that? Because there's a there's an awful lot still out there, still plugging away at sketch comedy. Oh, there is well yeah. that's good to know because I felt we've had 20 years of stand-up and I'm getting a bit tired of that mm. you know <laughs> I, I, I actually was hoping duos would start to come back and I think they have started but but more in stand-up you know more on, like Morecambe and Wise or something but um, I, I like sketch comedy personally I, I think it's very good um, and it's refreshing mm. and uh do you have anything left on your little list? You've done you've done uh, a Broadway musical. You've you've written films. You've starred in films. 
directing maybe oh no, no 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 i'm tired of films i gave up films a long time ago it's so so boring i mean there's nothing more boring than making a film <laughs> nothing at all <laughs> takes a long, Just, long time really dull um so i gave that up and I, i'll what i decided i would do in about 1999 which is when i first set out on the road was to see what made me laugh and so I just went back to writing and performing. And so I've just determined now for the rest of my, my days, it, I'll just write things that interest me and try and make them happen. Is there an autobiography on the way at some point? No, not really. I mean, the, the Greedy Bastard Diary, <laughs> which is a, 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 tour, a tour diary, is yeah. as close to autobiographical as I get, because I was on the road and I was doing a blog every day and I was grumpy and fed up <laughs> and, you know, I was writing things and memories would occur. Uh, on the road so it's both a travelogue and an autobiography okay you say you've given up films but you've done character which I very much enjoyed in Shrek 3 I think it was but that was in the 90s wasn't it or 2003 no it was about five years ago well the fact is that you know in America you have to keep your insurance going ah and the easiest you know the easiest way to keep that going is an animated (laughs) film because it's only three days it's radio yeah you go into a studio, you record it, and they go, thanks a lot, see you at the opening. Uh, you know, so that's about as long as I can stand on anything. <laughs> uh, does this explain, then, why you weren't involved in the Graham Chapman biography? Um, it's partly. I didn't. I was doing Dick, and I was having a good time, and I've got this whole other piece of work going. And, and also, I thought it was a bit of a rip-off. You know, you, you can't sell it as a Python reunion. If you get the individuals into a recording studio separately... Mm-hmm. And Python doesn't own it or control it or write it. Mm-hmm. And it, it just didn't appeal to me. I didn't I didn't want to do it. Um, you know, and they, they try and do it with another film. Every every week I read there's another Python reunion film. There's uh, one coming up at the moment with uh, Terry directing. Yeah, exactly. Well, it's not Python at all. It's greedy bastard producers using our name to raise the money. Yes. Mm. And, and that seems to me, if you allow that to happen, you're ripping off the public. Mm-hmm. And while we make jokes about ripping off the public, we actually always gave them way more than they could possibly expect, mm-hmm. I think. That's it's the hallmark of Python. It is uh, it's such an easy way into the the Graham autobiography, which is which is a, a good film. Have you seen it yet? Have you? No, I haven't. Yeah, but, but I, I love the book. I yeah. think it's a really good book. Yeah, it's yeah. It's, it's interesting. But uh, but like I said, you have been with uh, with uh, Terry and Michael this week, and you know, if we lose, we're going to do the O2 Arena, the seventh. <laughs> we're going to do the seventh Python show. <laughs> I just let let him do it himself. He, he can do it. Oh, he I can do a one man show. Maybe. If he's so funny, he can. Mm. <laughs> surely, this has been his one man. Show seven years pursuing us. I mean, sometimes people have nothing to do. Yeah, and you know he's made nothing ever since. So indeed, indeed. There is one thing we're talking about: things that you did after Python, and uh, another big part of my childhood. You don't realise how much your voice has been inside my brain. Is the Rincewind slash Discworld games? Yes. And when I read Terry Pratchett, and he's one of those authors that I have reread many times, you are the voice of Rincewind. You are there in my brain. And the idea of David Jason doing it was horrifying to me. Was that what happened? He did it for Sky One. He, he did a live thing. And it was nice enough, but yeah. the voice was wrong. Ah, well, it was something <laughs> I did really early on, I think, when I got to California. And I, I, I don't know that he asked for me, or, but I think I did two or something more. I mean, I did it a bit, and it, it was quite fun. Again, it's, it's easy work because it's radio. <laughs> you know, I mean, I like radio. It's a great, great medium. But again, I, I like the recording studio, mm. and I, I think I mean I don't think I did it with John. I think I did it with Tom Scott or something. But uh, yeah, I mean I just spent three years doing Death the Musical <laughs> before throwing it away and going on to Dick, which is far.
far more popular. <laughs> <laughs> is there any chance of uh, <laughs> it's a sequel? Well, yeah. any of, I was going to say, is there any chance of uh, bringing your dick over here at some point, or is that? Well, is you that mean on stage? On stage, yeah. With well, with perhaps some British talent, maybe Steve Coogan or someone like I'm just uh, some British talent. Yeah, look at that list of names. Yeah, yeah. And people who There's live not here. a yank on the stage. People who live here. <laughs> well, I would be happy to do that. I mean, uh, first of all, you have to make it successful in its own terms yeah. I mean if it's if people want it you can't stop them having it yeah. but if they don't want to know uh-huh. you know it, it, it goes away so I think that there's a possibility of doing it as a, as a theatrical venture and I've had the option of workshopping it and putting it doing it as a musical but I thought nothing is better than these people doing <laughs> it you know no matter how good the actors are but so maybe in future you could get people who are not as funny as Russell Brand or Eddie Izzard <laughs> or Billy Connolly. I wouldn't recommend that. No, but, but I mean, I've, I've had it. Billy Connolly's role has been read by other people when Billy was on tour and we were doing read-throughs. Yeah. And it's just as funny. Inspector McGuffin stage. I said, no, you know, you're not here. what he's saying. Hey, hey. You know, it's, it's just incomprehensible Scottish. And it can be done by other people. Right. Okay. <laughs> well, I wish you all the best, sir. And uh, it's a... 43rd anniversary of uh, of Python if you have a 43rd anniversary it's the 7th anniversary of Spamalot this year do you see this going on for indefinitely you'll be talking about it in 10 15 I years think time it, it's longer than the 7th isn't it I mean we started in 2004, well, 2004 strictly okay, so it's it opened on Broadway 2005 yeah um, oh, I wish it would go on and on I mean <laughs> I like going to foreign countries and seeing the foreign productions. So it hasn't been done in Brazil yet. I want to go there. And Michael Palin was just there. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> he should have gone over with him. Well, he, should, he could play Arthur. He may have to if we lose his case. <laughs> well, let's hope it doesn't come to that. Uh, Eric, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure. For coming Thank in. you. Thank you.